0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. While well, we're continuing our series today, The Invisible War. So let's turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 13, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Demon Possession."
1: I must say that demon possession should not be considered the predominant issue when we're talking about demons. Well, that's because these are unusual events. Well, nonetheless, it is discussed in the New Testament and especially in the ministry of Jesus. So, since it is a biblical theme, I think it's necessary to discuss that theme. I've chosen to study the most famous of these cases of demon possession, and it's the one that's found in Mark 5, 1 to 13. So let's start by reading verses one to five. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces." No one had the strength to subdue him night and day among the tombs, and on the mountains he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. The fact that this man lived among the tombs, that simple fact, would have, in the mind of most of the people who lived in that place, have already rendered this man unclean. But Mark is not telling us that he's ritually unclean or that he's physically unclean from having been homeless and sleeping out among the tombs. Well, we've got to assume that this man looked absolutely filthy, but that's not Mark's point. This man, says Mark, is a man with an unclean spirit. We will, in just a little while, examine that phrase with an unclean spirit. So does he live alongside of an unclean spirit? Does an unclean spirit have an undue influence in his life? Has a demon been attacking him, or is an unclean spirit living inside of him? It's this matter, as we will see, is of considerable importance. But for now, we simply notice that Mark says this man is with an unclean spirit. But that matter, which Mark will soon resolve for us, is the explanation for why he's living among the tombs. We have to assume that the unclean spirit had driven him to the tombs. He is, when we meet him, already a walking dead man. His prospects are dead, and we see that he seems to be out of his mind. Because of the threat that he poses, people have tried to shackle him, but this man exhibits strength that's simply beyond mere human strength. And, says Mark, the man seems to have a considerable degree of self-loathing. He's cutting himself. He's clearly in pain and in despair, and he's crying out at various times. No doubt everyone in the village is only too aware of the tragedy this man represents. So let's continue to read verses 6 to 8. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. You know, some Bible teachers who have researched the matter of Jewish exorcists at the time of Jesus will say that an exorcist could gain advantage if he knew the demon's name. And on the other side, it was also believed that the demon that knew an exorcist's name would render that exorcist ineffective. So from that vantage point, the demon crying out, "'What do you have to do with me, Son of God?' is a vain attempt to make Jesus ineffective." Well, I myself have no comment on that matter. I know only a very little about the practices and beliefs of Jewish exorcists at the time of Jesus. But what is of great interest to me is that the demon speaks through the voice of the man and Jesus speaks back to the demon and tells the demon to come out of this man. What must we then conclude? Well, we must conclude first that Jesus believed that the demon was living within the body of of this hapless man and that the demon was in control of the man. He was able to control the man's vocal cords and his muscles, for that matter. This demon was able to dominate the physical body of this man. He simply took that body over. You might be wondering why I'm making so much out of this, what seems quite obvious from reading the text. And... I'm making a great deal out of this because there seems to be some confusion today about this matter of demon possession. One recent scholar said, and I quote, the term demon possession is an unfortunate term. The Greek word, he says, should simply be translated as to be demonized. You know, this author argues that it's all a matter of degree. He claims that to be demonized is to be attacked by or to be influenced by demons. And then he goes on to argue that this attack doesn't have to be constant. It may come and go from time to time. And so he goes on to claim that Christians can also be attacked by demons. Indeed, we can also be influenced by demons, even strongly influenced by demons. Hence, to be demonized is simply a matter of degree. And so he says Christians can be demonized, at least in some sense. And it is this belief that we shouldn't speak of demon possession, but rather various degrees of being demonized, that has given rise to what I like to call a Christian cottage industry. This is the deliverance ministry industry. You know, it goes something like this. Are you struggling with lust? Well, you probably have a demon of lust that's influencing you. You, you have become demonized. We need to perform a deliverance ministry on you and cast the spirit of lust from you. And of course, lust isn't the only issue. There's the spirit of anger and the spirit of unforgiveness and the spirit of self-condemnation and the spirit of disobedience to God and the spirit of envy and the spirit of pride and the spirit of alcoholism and drug addiction and the spirit of idolatry. I mean, the list of the various spirits that are demonizing you, it just goes on and on. One popular book on this matter, it was called The Bondage Breaker. Well, by the time the author was done, I thought the book should have been called The Bondage Maker. I mean, every time you turn around, a new demon is demonizing you and you need a deliverance ministry. And to take this matter even further, I've heard some of these teachers go so far as to speculate that since the born again spirit of a believer rejects sin, Well, then the only reason that you're struggling with sin is because you're being demonized. It's not your fault. It's the demons. And so come the deliverance services. You spirit of lust, I command you in the name of Jesus to take your hands off of poor Rudy. He belongs to Jesus and you can't have him. And I command you in the name of Jesus that you release him and I consign you back to the pit. At least that's how it sounds. And then, amazingly, Rudy might even begin to shake and sometimes even make growling sounds, and then suddenly he's released. And everyone praises God for the mighty power of Jesus over that spirit of lust. You wonder, why am I making so much of this? Well, let me explain. I, for what has now been almost the length of my ministry, have declared war on unbiblical ways of thinking. Hear me, and get a dose of biblical reality. These attitudes—lust, unforgiveness, anger, pride, various addictions, slander of others— I give you a very long list here. It's never called being demonized in the Bible. It's always, and without exception, referred to as the lust of the flesh. You know, as an example, listen to Galatians 5, 19-21. Now, the works of the flesh are evident—sexual immorality, impurity— sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. What? you know? I thought these things are examples of being demonized. Aren't these the work of demons? Listen, they are not. They are examples of the works of the flesh. You know, I know that some of you wanted to argue with me about this, and I I simply respond by saying, you're not arguing with me, you're arguing with the plain teaching of the Word. So then, what should you do if you're struggling with these attitudes that are mentioned in the Bible? Should you call a deliverance ministry and, and cast these demons from you? No, no, you shouldn't. Listen to the Bible. Get back to the Bible. Colossians 3, verse 5 doesn't say, cast these demons from you. Listen to what it says. It says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, the older theologians called this, that is, to put to death. They called it the mortification of the flesh. They told us that we must wage a war on those habitual patterns that are built into our bodies that are leftovers from the fall. We have to treat these attitudes within us with no mercy. We must kill them or they will kill us. Put to death the fruit of the flesh. That's what the Bible teaches.
0: Every year, Back to the Bible works hard to bring you resources that engage your thoughts in the Bible. This month, we've created a very special book that we think will become part of a Christmas tradition for many families. It's our Laugh Again 12 Days of Christmas Stories, 12 of Phil Calloway's favorite Christmas stories, 12 readings from the Bible of the actual Christmas story, all designed to prepare our hearts for the occasion of Jesus' arrival. Use for your personal devotions around the dinner table, or at night with the kids, perhaps before they go to bed. 12 Days of Christmas Stories is a full-color, fun, and thoughtful book that will engage both young and old in the real meaning of Christmas. So request your free copy during the month of November in preparation for the Christmas season as our Christmas gift to you. Just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit Back to the Bible.
1: But how are we to do that? How, how are we to put to death the deeds of the flesh? Well, listen to Romans 8, verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So we're going to have to learn how to walk according to the Holy Spirit. We'll need to give ourselves to prayer. We'll need to be responsive to the Spirit's pleading in our lives. We won't want to quench the Spirit. We'll need to learn to fight for holiness in every single area of our lives. Now, the problem isn't that we're being demonized. The problem is that we're acting according to the flesh and that we're failing to mortify the flesh. See, it's all a matter of what you feed. Feed the life of the Spirit listen to his voice. Find joy in your Bible. Delight yourself also in the Lord. Spend time in prayer. Commit to faithfulness to the people of God. Confess your sins to the Lord every single day. Confess your sins to one another. Ask the Spirit to help you. That's how you win the war. But if you feed the flesh by becoming self-indulgent, well, then the attitudes of death will grow in you, and you'll find a monster that you're unable to tame. But you can tame it first by repentance, and then by, through the Spirit, putting to death the misdeeds of the body. Demon possession is another matter entirely. Well, let's get back to Jesus and this horrifying victim of a demon. The demon, as we have seen, has come to live inside of this man. As such, the demon has gained control of that man's physical body. And it sounds terrifying because it legitimately is terrifying. We can only imagine the helplessness of being overpowered and ultimately going mad. In terror of what has transpired, this man is living among the tombs and has become insane. We now come to Mark chapter 5, verse 9. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. Now, a Roman legion would typically consist of four to 6,000 men. So is it really possible that this man has that many demons living inside him? Well, it does seem impossible, and I don't think the demon's response necessarily means that the number is exactly that of a Roman legion. But please understand, this is no mere mob of demons. A Roman legion acted in concert acted under orders. It was a coordinated fighting force to great effect. Now, here we're left to wonder for what purpose this great number of demons have come to make their home inside of this man. And of course, I am mindful that Matthew points out that there is a second man. Perhaps one is a leader and the other is simply a dominated lackey and he functions in the background. But let's not stop by asking too many questions until the text is over. So let's keep reading verse 10. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, this one line, often not considered, might be a key line in understanding the strategic significance of this legion of demons. What does it mean? Well, we have noticed that back in verse 7, the commanding officer of the legion has been telling Jesus, don't torment me. Luke, who also tells this same account, says that the demon was begging Jesus not to send them into the abyss. So, what's going on? Now, in our study of spiritual warfare, I've already made the point that neither the angels nor Satan nor the demons are omnipresent. You see, omnipresence is an attribute of God alone. Only he can't be confined to space, for he is everywhere present. But not so with the demons. Demons are spatially located. They can only be in one place at one time. But verse 10 tells us why the legion is making this request, because the legion of demons standing before the Son of God know that they are helpless to prevent him from doing what he wants with them. But they don't want to leave the country, and they don't want to be cast into the abyss. So what's the abyss? We have in a past study noticed that when the unrighteous angels first rebelled, God cast them into Tartus, or the realm of the dead. They were moved from heaven and now were given a home among the gloomy dungeons of the unrighteous dead who are imprisoned there awaiting for the final judgment. But now, as in the case of this demon-possessed man, this legion of demons seems to have, I say that, seems to have moved its base of operations from the gloomy dungeons of the dead to an earthly base of operations. And in order to make sense of that, consider what Jesus says in Luke 11:24. He said, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, It passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. Now, what is this place the demon seeks, this place of rest? Again, I insist that demons can only be at one place at one time. And they need a base of operation that takes them from the realm of the dead into the realm of the living, at least that's how it seems to me. And that, I think, is what's going on in the negotiations between Jesus and the commander of the legion of demons. Now then, let's read to the end of the passage, Mark 5, verses 11 to 13. Now, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea." Now, before we ask what just happened there, please notice again the clear evidence of what we have been talking about when we speak about demon possession. The demons are in the man. They came out of the man, and in consequence, he's no longer demon-possessed. Then the demon, says our text, entered the pigs, that is, they possessed the next bodies. Again, please notice that demon possession is never a matter of degree. It is either or. Either demons are inside of someone or something or they're not. Listen to the words of R.T. France, who's an excellent theologian. He says, The whole narrative, therefore, constitutes a striking example of the way the New Testament presents demon possession, not as a psychological problem of the one afflicted, but as a matter of alien occupation. Yeah, Dr. France is right. Demon possession is never a matter of degree. Rather, it's like the light bulb in your house. It's either on or it's off. It's like being pregnant. You either are or you're not. It's not like being educated, which is a matter of degree. This is a matter of yes or no. All right, but let's get back to the matter of why Jesus didn't command the demons back into the abyss, but rather allowed them to remain in the area, even while they now inhabited the pigs. So let's begin by reminding ourselves that according to the Old Testament law, pigs are considered unclean and they are not to be eaten. Now from that perspective, it would at least, from this demonic commander, he would think that he was gaining a concession from Jesus. They're allowed to remain in the area, even while Jesus now forbids them to torment another human being. It's a small victory, but from the perspective of the demons, it's still a small sliver of a victory they get to remain in the area. But it turns out it's no victory at all. Suddenly, the crazed pigs run over the bank of the cliff and the entire lot of them are drowned. In an instant, the demons are left without a house at all. Having no place of operation, the humiliated demonic commander is forced now to tell his legion he's been outwitted. They are then consigned, I would imagine, to the place of the dead and not to the living. The ultimate humiliation is that symbolically theirs is not even the place of the dead humans, but the dead pigs. Jesus' victory over this legion is so complete, so utterly overwhelming, that the disciples who watched this never forgot. I've begun our discussion of demon possession, and we've learned that demons seek to possess the living so that they might gain a base of operation among either a people or, more preferably, I think, an entire culture. And I've also tried to make the point that we should not confuse demon possession with the struggles that many Christians have with the flesh. I've tried to show that those who teach that to be demonized is simply a matter of degree are in fact misleading us in terms of the biblical evidence. Now, having said that, I'm not denying that we as believers do face spiritual warfare. So let me take us to a very telling verse, and it's in Ephesians 4, verses 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Other translations say, do not give the devil a foothold. This verse has been greatly abused by some. Some argue that demons can therefore gain ground in a portion of your life. But let's understand what Paul is actually saying. Paul says, if believers in Jesus don't deal with their anger properly, the devil can be given a chance to exert his influence within the Christian community. He's not saying they're going to be possessed. Rather, he is saying that the devil will use or exploit the lack of unity among Christians and use it for his designs. Clearly, there's so much more to learn about spiritual warfare and so much more to learn about Christians and our relationship to demons as a whole.
0: John, thanks so much. There's some clarity here, and, and I'd like you to just recapture that
1: again. There's a difference between often what we say is possession what the Bible is saying is demon possession. Boy, that's so important for us to come to terms with and, you know, Ben, down the road in a few um, uh, sermons from now, I'm going to be talking about one of the marks of demon possession is a deep abiding hatred of Jesus. That's what the demons do and that's the fruit that they manifest in the life of those whom they possess. But when we're struggling with the given sin, well, you know, I'm sure that the devil rejoices in us and encourages us on, but it is a sin of the flesh, and we need to name these things in the way in which the Bible does. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The
0: Invisible War, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. On November 14th, Dr. Neufeld will begin a new series that you won't want to miss, The Beginning of Jesus' Passion. It's a 20-message series on Matthew 21 to 25. There's a lot to unpack in these five chapters, and Dr. John's biblical expertise will shed light on these passages to help you understand them in a new and deeper way. This series begins with an overview of the qualities that are unique about the Gospel of Matthew and continues with a deep dive into the beginning of the last week of Jesus' life where he will fulfill the mission he'd been sent by the Father to accomplish. So mark your calendars for November 14th and check out this series on your local radio station, your preferred podcast platform, or at backtothebible.ca. And for more information, just call us at 1-800-663-663. 2425.